0: There. Woo! Man, I love this song. Hey, it's BT with Tales from a Gemini man, and this is—I love. I was telling why, well, you normally tape this show on Wednesday afternoon, uh, about you know noon Eastern time, and uh, for this guest, you know, like uh, he said, I couldn't do it that time, but how about you know? I said how about Friday. He said, yeah. And there's something about a Friday that is just special. And it's kind of apropos or par for the course because this next guest is special. I mean, and I say this because, you know, everybody, and I understand it. If you're just a, um, I hate to say regular person, but, you know, you don't really know comedy. And you know you know all the big names. You know, Kevin Hart or Sebastian Maniscalco, or you know, this and that. And there's people like my next guest who literally is one of the best in the business, he's done it all. He's been to every comedy festival, just for last, which is one of the best for for the best comedy comedians. He's been to that festival. I met him at the Aspen Comedy Festival. He has done. He's been a head writer for award shows. He's had. Oh, he, he's done everything in this business, and I from inside the business, we all know him. But I want the rest of the world to know he is one of the best, and he's also one of my best friends, Mister Billy D. Washington. How you doing, B? Yo,
1: BT. What's up, man? Thank you. Bro, I appreciate that. Those accolades are those accolades are so incredible for the uh 42nd comedian that you brought on here. Your show, man. I appreciate that, man. Yo, I was like, "Hey, man, you know what? We was going to have on a Domino's guy today, but he ain't ready because he's on pepperoni detail. So, let's see what Billy is doing." <laughs> Hey, man, them dudes at Home Depot, they got work to do today. So, you know what? Let's see what Billy is up to. <laughs> no, bro. No, seriously, man. I appreciate it. And you know, the sentiment is shared. We often talk about how much, uh, how unappreciated, I don't know if it's unappreciated, but how uh, undervalued we are just in terms of like this stand up comedy thing. Because I was telling somebody the other day, like when people talk about like black black people standing on the shoulders of black comedians, like we were the first sort of mainstream, like acts like black people. We were in that wave of black performers that really started to do mainstream clubs. You know, cause everybody would book the the no, the no name white dude. The no name white dude was working every week. But just in terms of like, but the thing is we had to have even more credits than the no name white dude in order to get the same the same uh, uh, the same sort of respect that he did. And you know, and guys like like me and you and Lou and Vince and guys like like Kyle Grooms and, and guys and other guys of that ilk, like we were the first guys to be able to really work mainstream clubs on weekdays and like the urban acts that are doing them every now, and then, the, the urban acts that occupy all the, the, the big club comedy schedules now. Those dudes were doing Wednesday nights and Sunday nights. And I don't, you know, in no shade towards any of those dudes. I get the, the business aspect of it. I get it from a closed vantage point, and I get it from their vantage point. But they just don't know that we were kind of the we were kind of the lab rats for that experiment. <laughs> yeah. They were like, okay, can we have these black people, these black dudes in here? And then and, and whatever. But we worked those clubs for years before any of them got in. And then now that they're in, I just think that, you know, uh, I just think that I wanted to say that to you because... You know, you were one of those first dudes that was on everybody's flyer, that was on everybody's schedule. You know, even before the Internet, you call a club, you're like, yeah, who's working there this weekend? You know, hey, BT is working there. So, you know, shout out to you, man, because, you know, I mean, we'll we'll never get our statue for being those guys. But as long as we know.
0: Well, you know, it's weird because, I mean, we got we got into this, like, real quick. Because I was going to work up to it. But since we're there, might as well go for it, man. It's like, you know I mean, seriously. It's like, I was going to warm up with a couple, you know, a couple warm-up rounds, like like Mayweather, and then get into it about the 4th or 5th. But but now we're in it. Let's get it. It's like, yeah. it, did you feel, I mean, especially coming, it's cool to look back on it now. But coming yeah. up, coming up in it, I remember we, we got... At least for me, you know, that Def Jam period was just coming in, and I'm so far removed from Def Jam. And it's you, but even though you were on the show, you kind of are removed, I mean, from that kind of comedy. You know what I mean? At least back then. At least back then. And people don't understand, man. It was like, it was, I mean, there was almost, there was no gray line. It was like, you were the Def Jam comic or you weren't. And if you went into the worst of you. you <laughs> if you went into like myself, I'm used to mainstream yeah. or, or so you know, white clubs, and you go to and get that urban night, as they call it, and man, they would eat my ass up. And it was a weird situation. Yeah. I'm looking back on it now, like to navigate through those rooms and to do the urban rooms and the mainstream rooms. Man, how did you do that so flawlessly without compromising your values? Because you never switched up. You know, where me, I had to I, just, I guess catch up and, and I had to write differently, which I thought was good. It made me uh work a different muscle. So how did you do that without compromising? Because you did the same you did the same act regardless, and it went over. And that what was so beautiful about you, you stayed the same and you never changed. You never added a word here to make it sound more quote unquote urban.
1: Well, let's not get it twisted. Uh <laughs> <laughs> no, bro, i have, like, that Def Jam period was probably, like, the most lucrative time of my career, uh, but it was also, you know, the most difficult time of my career. Because, okay, let me give you a little history, and, and I'll apply it to what was going on in the world during the mid-'90s. So during the mid-'90s, so it was Def Jam, so I'm associated to this, to this hip-hop movement, Well, I've never been a hip hop dude. I never had anything against it, but I grew up, I grew up in, you know, my dad's a preacher, grew up in a super religious household. You know, we listened, I listened to 60s soul music, you know, and I played classical music. And when I got over, I just gravitated more to like mainstream stuff. And it wasn't like white music or whatever, but it was just like the stations that it was just the music that I liked more. So I never felt like this true connection, like to the, to the hip hop generation. Do I love it? Of course I do. Do I respect it? Of course I do, but I I was never connected to it. Now, couple that with, during the mid 90s, that's when crack, was was infiltrating this country, right? right? And then you had these drug dealers that were all over the country and they figured out that having comedy shows was a good was a great way to launder money right yeah yes. so what what would happen is is like you wouldn't have like if I did a, a regular club yeah and people came out to see me and black people came out to see me, it's cool because that template is consistent. It's gonna be the same music, it's gonna be a professional atmosphere. You're gonna have pretty much mainstream hosts and whatever, and then I close it at the end. And then so the the black people sort of see me within that environment, which is great. But when it came to, (laughs) you know, people wanting to pay me stupid amounts of money, people wanting to pay me seven thousand dollars to come and do forty-five minutes at this uh, at some club in Detroit, mind you, I had an agent. I I wasn't talking to these dudes. I didn't know what it was. I'm like, yeah, what's up? I'm gonna go. I didn't know that when I went down that people was going to be picking me up in in limousines with walkie-talkies, you know, smoking with the driver, smoking weed, right? Didn't know this. I knew my hotel was nice. I'm like, you know what? A five-star hotel is a little bit unreasonable for me, but I'm just going to roll with it. I didn't know that when I got to the gig that their idea of a comedy show was a DJ playing the most gutter music. Uh, uh available in the country with people dancing and getting drunk two hours before i was gonna go on stage. I did not know this. So when I did those gigs, when I was around those people, and I don't mean know those people because those people are my people too. Right, 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 I just right. I just I just wish that you know that I could have been more of a spectator than than the uh <laughs> Than it, than it, than the spectacle, you know, because yeah. then they bring, you know, they bring my the bridges ass up, you know, to do, you know, they want me to do, they want me to connect with this hip hop generation, they want me to be able to appeal to this, 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 this sort of, you know, this, this hierarchy of the drug community and whatever, and I'm doing my thing, and to put it lightly, uh, it didn't go so well sometimes, <laughs> and bro. <laughs> and, and BT, I had a lot of these gigs. I had a lot of these gigs, man, where they were just like, I had, I remember I had a fax machine back in the day and every time I hit, at first where I hit a fax machine jump off, I would get excited because I would know it'd be an offer. It'd be an audition or, or whatever. But after a while, like after I did the third Def Jam, when that fax machine would go off, man, I'd be terrified because I look at the money versus what i'd have to endure and when it was a promoter show like if it was a club i was always excited because no matter at the clubs i always won yes but like when you get those promoter shows they put comedians up in front of you they ain't never done it before they're doing the best of everybody else whatever and then you get up and you try to do your little original thing and it just it just it just wasn't happening it just was not happening
0: people don't realize i mean looking back on it it's funny looking back when you're in it when you're in it it's, it's all like military when they talk you know they said they oh, i remember that I remember that one i remember being in denang i remember being in in uh in, in vietnam yeah man we were in that shit bro and <laughs> bro we were that, in it and, and during that time oh i just remember man like I just remember crowds being quiet or, or you going at it with people and you going out the back or waiting till everybody left make sure that dude, dude wasn't waiting for you in the parking
1: lot. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, dude, I use the analogy sometimes. Like, I tell people, like, as great of a basketball player as, as Michael Jordan was, yeah. you, know, he, you can't say just because he's an athlete. Saying funny is funny. It's like saying if Michael Jackson, if Michael Jordan can play basketball, you can play anything. We saw what that nigga did playing baseball. Him playing baseball is like what I was in that room. Hey, bro, you know, when it come to other rooms and whatever, and I'm not talking about Black people. People say, a lot of people go, hey, man, you well, you can't, you don't relate to Black people. Of course I relate to Black people. Everything that I talk about is basically my Black experiences. Yes. But the thing is, it's like, you, you can't put me in, in an environment that I'm for unfamiliar with, with people that, that have experiences that I can't relate to. Like, I can't relate to going, you know, going to jail and being on government cheese and and and, and, and welfare and whatever. Yes.
0: Yes, and, and that's why, and honestly, that was the, the hardest part because I couldn't be something I wasn't. I mean, I, you know, I tried, to, I tried to, you know, wear Timbo's and try to fake it for a little bit, you know what I mean? Any pair of the yeah. Timberlands I bought to, just to fake that for a little bit? But it, Oh, and, my God. And that's why, honestly, we, you, can, you came up with this. I was lucky to be part of it, but you came up with the Cell Comedy Tour and for those of you who don't know, I mean, honestly, it's like, I, 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 it's like being a Tuskegee Airman. I mean, what we did, I mean, what you did. Because I'm gonna tell people right now. No, it's week. It's week. It's definitely week. No, no, it was you. Because I remember, I just remember being in a hotel room in Detroit at a Red Roof Inn, which is uh, which is one step above a, a, a super eight and a Motel yeah, Six, which which is another which is one step up from a gulag. But yeah. go ahead. <laughs> 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 I remember, I just remember looking at my notebook going, man, where the hell is this going? And I was just kind of depressed. And I get this phone call. And I tell you this all the time. And all I heard from that phone call was, hey, man, I got this idea. And, man, from then on, I was with it. And we came up with the Cell Comedy Tour. For those of you unaware, and I want you to tell what the, what the Cell Comedy Tour was about. Because I want you to tell these people what it was about. Oh
1: yeah, it was about the, uh, like, basically what I explained. Like, we were in this like really precarious position, whereas we wanted to perform, we, we went where the money went. Yes. Like when we started, it was, all the money was just in white spots. Like there was no black comedy sort of place to develop in Houston, but there were plenty of, of white places to develop, right? And so what they did is they sold you on, uh, on a program or they sold you on a template that if you followed this, then you could do this. You can make this much money. You can do whatever, whatever. So we ended up doing that. It wasn't that choice. It just what was available. It just what was available to make money. So we started working these white clubs, quote unquote, white clubs, whatever. Black people are there. But, but at that time, let's be real. Black people wouldn't really fooling the comedy clubs like they're, like they're doing right now. Yes. So we ended up working on these white clubs, but then when we would do like the black venues that I mentioned, like, cause I was hot off this, I, I was like kind of at the end of, you know, these Def Jam dates and whatever, and people doing whatever. You know, I'm not gonna say that I, that I bombed all of it. Man, I may have like really bombed maybe three times out of about 30 gigs, but this is on, on a scale from one to 10. Like if I did like a, a six or a seven, I was happy. Yeah. So what, I, what, I, what I thought, I survived. So what I thought would be cool is I just wanted to put together people who, that were just like me, comics that were just like me, who I knew that were about the culture, who I knew that was, that was woke, who I knew that had a voice, who I'd seen in white room be their authentic selves and say, hey, man, let's throw this up against the wall and see if it sticks and let's call it sellout. Let's call it sellout because that's what people say. People want to call us sellouts. Meanwhile, we can articulate more about, about the Black movement. Then the people that are actually saying that it's like you. Know, what what have you done to, uh, in pursuit of your blackness that supersedes what we've done? And nobody can ever answer that question.
0: Well, we, we what, but you mentioned woke. No, we were we were around before that word even came up or conscious right. or whatever. I mean, we were right. w- before woke was popular. We were conscious or whatever. So you know, it's like, and that's the thing about how did you navigate that being yourself. Because I, I, we've and we both have we've all worked those clubs to where you mentioned you start talking about this quote unquote woke stuff before it was woke. And, you know, white club owners are like, hey, uh, you know, could you not do that one joke or this and that? Like, how did you feel about uh, instances in that, uh, about, like that? You know, when you talk about, you know, let's say the police shootings or whatever, because I mean this has always been around. You know, and so you start, and it's a, maybe say a pro-black tip or whatever, whatever situation may be. Sometimes, you know, club owners be like being uncomfortable. Hey, could you not do that one joke or or this and that? Like, how did you always maintain that level of consciousness and also and not compromising your values? Well, because when
1: I started doing comedy, the specific my specific purpose, and that's just, this is why sometimes it's hurtful when when the black community. Starts looking at their phone when I'm on stage is because the only reason that I am who I am is not because I want to impress you, is because I want to make you proud of me. It's like because when I grew up, man, like grew up in comedy, I would see uh, white comics, you know, uh, 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 they would they would talk about these these black stereotypes, right? Oh well, you know, once you go once you go white, then you, your credit is right and whatever. Oh, and and the only time black dudes would get would get credit for anything or be for having big penises and whatever. And so I would see them and I wanted to be the, not only did I want to be the counter to that, but I wanted to beat them at their own game. Just because when I was, from the time I was a kid until the time I was adult, I always feel marginalized in the presence of white people. I always felt like they felt like that they were better than me. Mm -hmm. So like when I went on stage, I always had to feel like that I was gonna do something that was better than whatever whatever everybody else did on stage. And no matter what happened, I was gonna be the most interesting person in the room. And that's why sometimes, this, this, this sticks in my head and it's weird. I hadn't, I hadn't really, I, I've never said this out loud, but one time I was doing this, a black show. And then after the show, this girl came up to me and she said, you know, uh, uh, on stage, sometimes I feel like you think that you are better than, than regular black people. Nah, bro, I don't do anything that illustrates that I'm better than black people. But the reason that she felt like that is because I've spent so many years trying to, like, be better than these audiences that I'm portraying this character that's better than these white audiences that that I'm in front of, and I guess, like, somehow that's bled over into what I do in front of, and it's not the material, it's just, like, this confidence that I try to exude when I'm in front of them, because I don't want them to think that I'm scared, I want them to know that I can talk about anything they can talk about, I want them to think that, that I'm just as intellectual as they are. I don't want them to think that I'm, I'm I'm gonna be subscribing to these same black comedy tropes as everybody else is. And so like when I, the, the painful part was when I would do that in front of black people, I'd be like, man, I want y'all to know, bro, like y'all be proud of me. Like I'm fighting over there. Like we over, you over here in this choir, right? But I'm gonna be killing it over there and, but when I come back here, I'm one of the best over here. But when I come back over here, I don't get appreciated for it. And then that's why that was the genesis of the idea.
0: And how frustrating was that for you? I mean, did you ever leave like going, they don't get it? Or or what What am I not getting? I mean, was it, was it frustrating for you to be that way? Because I know sometimes I would be in my head like, Jesus, like like after a show, this dude, I think it was when I was coming up to rock and roll. And talking about you know what I was talking about, and this guy was like, "Yeah, man, I know why you have to do that kind of material." I go, "No, no, I actually really like rock and roll." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? no, that's really what yeah. I like. I really like racing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I, and it, it, you 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 said it so great when you go, "Man, I love my people. I do. I really do." And I think it's better now. I think now is a great time in comedy because I just feel like I and, and I was talking about this with my producer. I said, you know what? If you don't watch the news, it's actually a better world. If you don't watch it, because if you go out in, in society and those people who we're supposed to be warring with or, or at each other's throats, if you sit down and have a conversation with them, man, I mean if, I mean, granted, there are there are that, that that little one percent that you go, okay, uh, you know, but for the most part, people will have a conversation. I mean, they might be full of shit, but they'll have a conversation with you. And, you know, it, it's, it's not as bad as people think, but, man, there were times where I was like, what aren't they getting? I mean, is it me? It, it, you know what I mean? I mean, how frustrating was it for you?
1: Well, I mean, it, it, it was super frustrating for me because, like, just in terms of, like, I didn't have the black, black clout, but I had the black stats. You know, hey, man, I did the FDM three times. I did BET. I toured with Aretha Franklin. I did the the, the gigs. I did the Jack and Jill gigs. I grew up in a black household. My father is a black preacher. My wife is black. Like I mean, just I check all the, I check all the black boxes, but then they judge me based on making them think. People go, hey, man, we don't want to come, we don't wanna come to comedy club, we wanna come to laugh, we don't wanna come to think. Then I don't get that. But if that's your prerogative, then okay, so what you said earlier. There's no answer to that. That's a zero-sum game. Is it their fault or is it my fault? Who knows? All I know is that when I was younger, I blamed them. But the older I get, I go, you know what? Man, I got a responsibility to figure this out. Without me, quote-unquote, dumbing it down, I got to get this figured out. And so when I really stopped caring about it, when it really stopped mattering what they thought, and I just wanted to be like who I am on stage and they like you cool and they don't, the, the, when the desperation started to cease, because you remember the desperation. You remember being on stage, on side of the stage going, you were not saying, man, I'm gonna get up there and kill these motherfuckers. You was, go, you was on stage going, man, I can't, I'll be glad when this shit is over. Let me just get this shit over with. If I can just start off, if I can just get some momentum with these first couple of bits, yes. then I got them. Yes. But if, I, if, if, if these first, if, if, if he puts the mic in the mic stand too hard, And I got to struggle getting the mic stand out and that diverts their (laughs) attention for that that many milliseconds, then the shit is over.
0: (laughs) You know what, man? It's like to me, it was like fighting Mike Tyson in the 80s. If you just survived all 12 rounds, you go, that's a victory for me. I mean, that's what to me, that's what it was like. It was like, and (laughs) listen, I want to put you on the spot. Can you tell the St. Louis story? I want I want people to hear the St. Oh, Louis. bro!
1: I tell I tell it's a cautionary tale. I tell it. Okay, I, okay. I'll tell you the medium length version of the story because you know the long version of the story. So, I was on the Deaf Comedy Jam tour, right? Feeling myself, so I'm with the Deaf Comedy Jam tour. So I'm telling you about templates, right? So when we go, the first couple of dates that I do, they're at fancy theaters, right? We at the with this really fancy theater uh, in Tampa we're at a fancy theater here in Houston. I go up, I crush, you know, because you know us, you know, when we out and we had place fancy and nice and whatever, we're going to be on our best behavior. That's what up. That's what we do. So uh, that's what's up. That's what we do. Uh, so I, I'll get ready to go to St. Louis. Uh, I'm thinking, you know what, man, I'm getting ready to go now, now mind you, I'm on tour with, I'm, a, I'm with Guy Tory Joe, Tory, and we switch it out with Adele Gibbons with a, uh, with Tommy Davidson, with talent, with Tracy Morgan. Like we switching it out, you know, every week. So I, I get ready to go to St. Louis and, and the weekend before it was on, it was a Saturday show. Friday, my manager had called me and told me that, you know, that I got this deal, that I'd you know, I, I got the VH1 deal. Then I, 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 this BJ spot on VH1 and whatever. So I'm fired up about it. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, the career has gone great. I just mashed in front of these fools, whatever you know. So I decided I was gonna go to St. Louis and I was gonna wear me some a uh, uh, flannel shirt, some some tight jeans, and some cowboy boots because I was feeling myself, bro. I get there and it's the uh, it's the Fox Theater, right? Now, mind you, I go into this thing confident. I don't even think about this gig. You know, how it's like sometimes you get ready to do that one gig, and you think about it like two weeks. Like as soon as you book it, you start stressing out until you finish it, and then you're like, Why well, was I tripping? Like, I didn't even think about this gig. I was like, man, I got this thing, but I, I, I yeah, I'm just gonna go out and do, do, do my Billy D." Yeah. I get to the Fox Theater and uh, first of all, I, I, when I got there, I knew I knew something was amiss when I smelled weed wafting from the walls of the, the Fox Theater. I think they're smoking weed inside the theater? The weed was wafting from the. Okay, cool. Mm. I get in the back and whatever. Joe tory the, the amazing as he is, Joe tory can do it. Joe tory is from St. Louis. Now this thirty five hundred people, I don't know where these thirty five hundred people came from, but I'm, I am relatively sure that a lot of this thirty five hundred people had parole officers with them. <laughs> So Joe gets up. So Joe gets up. Joe gets ready to do his thing. Joke it goes out. First of all, first time the show started late. Uh, uh, uh oh, we got this DJ. We had DJs on other shows. They were more commercial DJs. They played everything. They played everything. They played all the good music. What they played. Play. Like, I wonder where I've been. That was other. time. Not to let you know, man. We got this boy. It was straight up. Kill a nigga, die. You know. You know. It was just like everything was like death. Hip hop murder hip-hop dj's on the stage sweating i'm like okay joe starts the show uh first time i heard joe have some problems joe was always seamless he'd get up do the thing joe was in his hometown joe trying to do the thing uh he started getting booed a little bit so then but then joe goes in on him joe goes in hard like talking about him, talking about it, getting him back getting him back getting him back doing what joe does he's going into his bag it ain't like the other show. He ain't had to go in his bag. Mother so he just came out, popped his muscles, breezed up, whatever. Just <laughs> some cute little material. Bring on the next dude. No big deal. Here, he in his bag. Okay, so then guy comes up, guys from there too. Guy is smart. Guy says, start start, start shouting, call that high schools, right? Hey, who from the high school? Who from that high school? Your high school ain't shit. That high school ain't that. I yeah, I, I fucked the bitch that high school. You know this bitch whatever. So he he ended up getting them. Me. I didn't have a strategy. I, I'm just going out there in my uh, in my tight jeans and my cowboy boots, <laughs> like pretty much everybody got on black, you know, Tims, whatever, you know, some jersey and shit, some, you know, and, and, and you know, bro, I get out there, and first of all, it's you know the, the 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 house level is high when I get up there, like the like the mumble level. Yeah. So then we trying to do my little cute shit. I start off with you know my little you know my little no on basketball player joke, my little roach joke and shit. Then bro, I just like they responded the same way at the end of my joke as they did at the beginning. It was like the punchline never even showed up. So then I started going to some more stuff. And then, you know, you I heard a couple of booms. Yeah. I'm like, Oh shit, am I about to get it? So then I, so I, I keep going with the joke. I kind of mess up the joke a little bit, started going some more, man. And so on the front row, there was this, 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 oh, this, uh, uh, I used say this, this really curvy, Black woman, this old, nice. you know.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah, this really curvy black full woman. Figure. Full figure. Was on the front, Right, full figure, yeah, exactly. Black woman on the front row, and she uh, yells off the stage, get off the stage, motherfucker, you ain't funny. And then I just snapped because she attacked my ego, because I'm feeling myself. And then I go, and I quote, shut the fuck up, you fat-ass black bitch. Now, when I said that... <laughs> That when I said that, I did not realize, I didn't have the forethought to scan the audience to see how many fat-ass black bitches were in it. And apparently, the number was overwhelming. So at that moment, they started hating me. So what I did is... I figured, you know, i p. Play, I play the keyboard. I go, man, I'm going to get this keyboard, and I'm going to get it back. Now, mind you, I remember turning my back, walking back to get my keyboard, feeling like I might get shot in the back at any moment, because at this point, it's chaos. Like, you know you know, you bombing hard when you see all the comics on in the wings. They look at just to see what's going to happen next. I mean, the dude that was supposed to be down in security in the audience was in the wings looking to see what's going to happen. So I grab my keyboard, and I get ready. I start playing. They start to be quiet a, a little bit. And then I do the line, of, I do the hey ho, where they always, where they always uh, uh, laugh, yeah. and it was, a, it was a moment of silence. It was the calm before the storm. And then when they didn't laugh, bro, a tsunami of boos. Now I don't know about comedians telling boo stories, but I know guy, You know, you may get booed. Getting booed by twenty-five people, you know, okay. Right. You get booed by hundred people, okay, that's bad. But, bro, when you have never felt, like, like literally the, the sweat on your nuts until you hear 3,500 people boo to a point where you think that they want to murder you. So, so I walked up the stage, man, in the middle of the thing. Joe came back on. And what happened is that was a pivot point because that was the lowest point of the show. Joe comes back up. Joe cussed him out. He's like, hey, man, that's why we can't bring no shit to St. Louis. And Joe Torrey's, uh, uh, Joe Torrey's credit. He comes back out. He's like, "Man, hey, man, that's why we can't bring St. Louis. Y'all niggas don't know how to act. This is a class act. He's doing his thing. da 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 whoop de whoop You know, clap it up for Billy Dee Washington. And then they start clapping sarcastically. Okay, so the, the show goes great. Talent gets up and kills. Adele gets up and kills. Tommy gets up, has a little bit of a tough time, but at the end of the day, he's still killed. So the worst part of the whole night was at the end of the show, they bring everybody else up, you know, for the curtain call. <laughs> I'm like, nigga... Come on, man, come on, man. So they bring everybody up and then, and I know somebody told Joe to save me for last. So they brought, they clap for everybody. And they bring me up and to their credit- I didn't know,
0: I didn't know about this part. I didn't know about yeah, this part.
1: Yeah, yeah, To their credit, have you ever seen like on a, america a, a, a American Got Talent when you don't really know if the audience likes them or not, where there's, so, <laughs> there's just as many boos as there was as, as applause? That's what I got. It was it was very it was very polarizing. You know, nobody I, nobody knew what I didn't know what was going to happen. The people that liked me, they stood up and started clapping for me. Other people were pulling them down but clapping and booing. So yeah, man, that's the so that night was was one of the inspirations for the sellout comedy tour. It's like, man, if you guys would just listen to us, and, you know, and I, if we could just talk for a little bit. Like, give just give me a minute to, you know. Can I just prove my, my case to you before you decide you ain't going to like me?
0: <laughs> yeah, take off them cowboy boots. nigga. like, bro, come on now. You know, this is funny now, but when you're in it, that thing, it, it it eats at your craw. Like, I still wake up to this day and think about the gig in Charlotte, North Carolina. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, you know the worst show, and they stay with you forever. The, you know, mm. the gig in Florida State, man, it went bad. I mean they always stay with... How did you get over a bad show? How did you get over those? Like, like, uh, that one. You, like St. Louis, how did you get over that one?
1: Because I had to eat, man. I mm. mean, the, the money always supersedes the, the ego, you know? Like, if I was independently wealthy, like, if I had money, like, <clears throat> if they'd give me, like, a, a, like a $300,000 signing bonus <laughs> uh, for, for VH1... I probably would have never done comedy again. I probably would have taken that money. I would have have done that stuff and and whatever. But bro, I had to eat. And ironically, I don't know if I told you this either, but I was scheduled to be back in St. Louis a month later at an army base. And you talk about PTSD prior to that show. But I got back on the thing, did the show, The show went great, and this is going to sound like a cliche, but I bullshit you not. And I was like, after that was over, man, like that shit was over, I felt like I wanted to cry. Bruh, I was like, okay, the monkey's off my back. Everything is cool. Everything around me was white noise, and then this guy just came out of nowhere. He walked up to me. He was like, hey, man, ain't you that dude that got booed at the Fox Theater (laughs) a month ago? (laughs) And then it all came rushing. <laughs> and he didn't shake my hand or nothing. I thought he was gonna go, yeah, man. I said he went, Here. I thought that was you. And he kept walking. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know what? This is the universe. But no, dude, it's like if you gotta make that money, it's just like it's just like war, man. And yeah. I don't, you know, and I don't say that to diminish, you know, because war is a lot more serious. I mean, like metaphorically, it's like yeah. war. It's like if you lose that battle, you can't be like, man, I ain't doing this no more. Yeah. You got to keep pushing, dude. I had kids to feed, man. You know, I got a family, I had a mortgage at that time. I couldn't be like, I'm not going to do these gigs no more. And they kept shooting me them high paying ghetto gigs, man. And I kept going in swinging, you know, taking these L's and, and whatever. And it, it made me a stronger comedian. So eventually I kind of got it figured out. I figured out a cool five minutes at the beginning of it to be able to get them into, to usher them into the material that I normally do. Yes. And therefore, I would survive. It made me like because when I was like when I uh, uh, when I do crowd work in white crowds against hecklers, it's like really neat. It's like really hard and just like go hard. Yes. But like in black crowds, I realized during that point, you can't do that. You can't go that hard on people that just don't know what they're supposed to do in that situation. Like when are mm-hmm. in social situations like that. A lot of people ain't never been to a comedy club before, and then yeah. you take it takes my family. I'll say that. Man, my family has said shit at my shows. And I'd be like, I'm going to say, man, well, you shut the fuck up. But I can't do that because it's my family. Right. So I don't do that. So what I try to do is, which is the car- which is the cardinal sin in any other scenario. But you just try to work that in, make them feel good about it, tell them you're doing the jokes and whatever. But it just, you know, for the people who can do it and do it well, that's why I admire guys like like Mike Epps. You know, dude, I love, I love Cat Williams. I'm not even talking about the super commercial dudes. I think Cat Williams. Let me tell you this, man. I think Cat Williams is perfect, exactly who he is, yes. flaws and all. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like you were talking about how uh, he 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 hurt himself in Hollywood and, and this that and because of who he is. I think who he is makes him bigger than Hollywood. Right. I think it makes him bigger than all that, man. Because because I wish that I could be able to uh to to put the package that type of intellect within that type of vibe and do what he does. Because he said some, she said some shit that it's like, hold up, hold on a second. If a white dude was saying this shit, you would have, the, he, he'd be on every talk show in America just talking about that. Yes. But since it's Cat Williams, you, you dismiss it because of the package. But the package is what I love. And that's the dude, it's like, he is kind of supplanted, and this is going to be a powerful statement right here. He is kind of supplanted uh, uh, Eddie Murphy in my top five. Cat Williams ad.
0: Wow, that is saying yeah. something, you serious?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he has replaced uh, Eddie Murphy in my top five, Cat Williams ad.
0: And, and why is that, why is that?
1: Well, because uh, I was always a fan of of, of Murphy's vibe and, and the, but he's only done basically two sets. Like, so we don't know what the, the consistency, we don't, under, we don't understand like who he was as a comedian. Like these other comics play, like, you know, Richard Briar and George Carlin and George Lopez is in my top 5. I love George Lopez. And yes. and you know what I mean? And, yes. and and Mitch Hedberg. You know, you they have a body of work, but it's like I came to like for me I feel like if Eddie's going to turn his back on stand-up comedy, then why do I keep putting this nigga in my, my top comics list? Yeah. You know what I mean? He's yeah, yeah. like yeah, sure he's reading a lot of uh, a lot of us did it, but I just feel like just in terms of the impact of it, just in terms of the art of it and, and the overarching things of everything that we do, the Cat Williams to me, uh, it, it, on my top, on my Mount Rushmore, he's uh, he's taking the place of Murphy.
0: I tell you, it was funny you say Eddie Murphy, because I remember, and I, I maybe I was reading a bio about you or something, and you said something, man, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. You said, I realized... And I'm paraphrasing here, the first part, but I got the second part right. Uh, you know, I realized at a certain age or whatever that I wasn't going to be the next Eddie Murphy. And yeah. that, And and honestly, it sounds like nothing, but man, it hit me hard because, it, yeah, because... I think we relate to Eddie because he was closer to our age group at the time. And we saw that, that meteoric rise That like, cause I remember right. being in high school and his special came on that Saturday on HBO. And that <laughs> Sunday, everybody was like, "Goonie Google. It's all everybody. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? We need, we need <laughs> to watch it. Like, what are you guys talking about? Goonie uh, Google. And I was like, what is, and so yeah, yeah. we saw that cause he was only like about what, uh, maybe five years older than us. So right. we could relate to that. And it was like, and when you said that, it hit me hard because I was like, why? Because you know, there's a time and people don't realize this. And that's what I respect about you. First of all, you can't place you in a box, which is beautiful. I mean, you're not j- just calling you just a comic is an insult because people don't realize you've done plays. You, uh, I think over 14 plays. You've done, he's got uh, uh, critically acclaimed short movies, uh, uh, short films, that is, that have been critically acclaimed. Bro was one of them that I've, oh my God, if you get a chance. See the movie, Bro. It's a short film by, by Billy. It's incredible. You've also done, you were like a head writer for a, an award show. You can't place you in a box. I mean, like I said, you play piano at your church. You have done everything, and you continue to do everything. You write screenplays. You write plays. Now, in addition to the comedy, it's like you can't place you in a box. And what I love about Billy and be, being around you is that, you see that creativity. And sometimes I don't wanna hurt your feelings. Sometimes it doesn't work, Mm -hmm. but you have to let you go. You know what I mean? It's like, It's like Jordan. If you're by, down by twenty, hey man, let him go. You know he's gonna he's gonna shoot. Yeah, as my friend said, he's gonna shoot till he gets hot. And that's you. And and yeah, watching yeah. your creativity, man, is the greatest thing. Because like I said you can't put you in a box. You can't you can't you can't put Baby in a corner and you can't put Billy D in a box. Because man, what you do is so eclectic and so everything. You, your 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 jokes are non sequitur. It's Just everything. You have everything, and this and this is the question I want to pose to you: is that not to hurt your feelings, but I just remember seeing you at a champs restaurant in Indianapolis, and it was in the summertime because I remember that because I had the, the, the I remember everything about this man because I you know I thought you would achieve this level of, of you know boom you were gone, and I saw you at a chance meeting, and I remember asking you like you know like hey man what happened with this gig or whatever, and it was like, you know because our careers have ups and downs. I remember you are like, yeah, you know, just – and you had a look of like, yeah, I, I kind of like it, – it, it's not there. It's not there, and it's, and it's not going the way I want it to go. And that's just a bye-bye got from you. But, man, you've navigated the waters. And so I want to ask you, man, is like during all this, what do you think your greatest asset is as a, as a performer or entertainer? Because that's what you are. You're an entertainer. Like I guess you you're not in a box, you're not just a comic book What do you think your greatest asset is? The writing The directing, your p- piano playing
1: uh, You know, by far, hey man, thanks for the piano All that crazy stuff, I wish you were on my podcast And I wish we had another hour Because if I know you were going to go here Instead of that, the time I took to uh, tell that story I would talk about how Like when I first saw you In Aspen And like everybody was like You know, the buzz was come watch this dude, B- BT because this is going to be the dude, this is the next dude to go. Remember that phrase? Everybody be like, you know, you be at the comedy store, be at the laugh actor, or whatever. You know, you'd be around a com- bunch of comedians. You'd be like, okay, that's the next dude to go. You come, you came to see BT. B- I saw you at, at, at Aspen. I was like, okay, I didn't know what I was going to do. And you were on stage before I was. And when I saw you, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be that good. So hopefully I can do something that they like. And then I remember afterwards, I saw you walk around with some big ass fur coat on. I was like, man, this dude is already a star. He got he got this big mink and whatever. No, but first and foremost, I feel the same way about you and everybody that knows you. Dude, you constantly reinvent yourself. Like everybody sitting around the pandemic, doing this, that, and the third, you know, re- relaxing on their laurels, uh, uh, feeling sorry for themselves, a uh, crying pandemic. But what do you do? You go out, you do your movie reviews, that I, that I follow religiously. Sometimes, most of the time you write, sometimes you don't know what the hell you are talking about. But still, <laughs> I, I watch, you know, you do your podcast, nigga, you up at four o'clock in the morning. I know that no matter what I call you at, at, at any time in the morning, I don't care, it could be 4-11. I, I, the first ring, what's up, Billy D? Nigga, how, how you up? I was gonna leave a voice me. message, what are you doing? So you've always been that dude. Then I think that the thing that we share in common is that we we in the game for what the game can do for us. We're in the game for what we can do for it. And if we love what we do, it ain't never work. My greatest a- my greatest asset and everything that I do is my passion and my love for the game. We got love for the game. People talking about when you're gonna retire. Retire, I've been retired for the last since I started doing this. This is my I started I started this this is my retirement job that I started when I was 28 years old and I'm still doing it because I love it sure you know you you get goals that are lofty goals and stuff that you see other people doing that you want to do but if you think about it if you didn't know other people was doing other stuff you would you'd be 100% happy like man I'm so happy with what I do right now I get to go across the country I get to make people laugh I get to ask somebody hey can I come to your city and 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 will you trust me in front of the, your patrons, your business people, to know that that I can be an asset to your to your particular business entity? And they go, yeah, and then they pay you money to do it. Come on, man, ain't nothing better than that.
0: Yeah. In the, what, what in the beginning you start doing comedy? What was the initial the initial goal overall goal when you got in? Like, this is what I want to accomplish in this business.
1: I it to be the headliner with the white opening act and the white feature that's what i wanted to do and i accomplished that within the first 3 years <laughs> and i rode that bitch for the la- for the next quarter century nigga that's who i wanted to be <laughs> and
0: why was that why was that so important why was that so important <laughs> because
1: like you know i've been a police officer before right so i understood the hierarchy and i'd always seen like i would never worked in i would never been in a work environment i've never been in an educational environment the only environment where i saw a hierarchy where where a black man was like like the shit was was the church and it was my dad and like but you know but it was overall black people and that's great but i wanted to be a, i wanted to be the, the 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 most interesting person in the room when it was all white people just so they could see hey man y'all ain't doing nothing that we can't do you aren't doing anything that we can't do that's why everything is so important that's why you know when uh, when when uh, like the, the recent NFL player came out and then people were on on twitter like saying why is it important why you do? you got to you got to say something because if you're a marginalized community like you want not only you want to uh, uh, exude acceptance but you want to say i'm better than what you think the normal people are who do this. That gay football player is better than the the uh, the other football. A lot of the football players that, of course, he's you know he's he's a uh, he ain't no starter, he ain't no star or whatever. But he's in the front of a line in front of another fifty thousand people who wanted to play professional football. So that's what I wanted to be, dude. I wanted to be that that's the journal truth, you know, for for black comedy because I wanted to be able to go into the belly of the beast and do my thing. I didn't, it it never, it it, it was, I was never motivated by performing in in front of Black people because I've done it my entire life. And I took Mm -hmm. it as a given, which was a mistake when I first started. I should have spent more time doing that. But I felt like, okay, y'all handle this over here. I got this over here. Y'all beat up whatever y'all got to beat up over here. I'm gonna handle these dudes over here. And then I handled them. But when it was, but when the paradigm shifted and then everything went back to urban comedy, I was like, you know what? I may, I may have made a crucial error, but like you said, I got all this other stuff, you have all this other stuff. So we can still play and tour around with comedy, but what you do and what you, where your motivation leads you, uh, 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 that's only gonna be stifled based on uh, uh, how you handle it. it. Ain't got nothing to do with nobody else. I don't care if we don't get but six views on this, it don't matter, we yeah. did it, and it's gonna be around forever.
0: Man. You know, it, it's funny you say that. It's like I feel that because I was like, I was talking to somebody last night. And I said, Man, you know what? I said, I got to go home and, and study a Billy D right now. I said, I don't want to disrespect him by going, Oh, it's Billy. We'll just shoot the shit. I said, Nah, he deserves more than that. Because if it was anybody else, I'd go home and do my homework on you. And it's like, I knew and I know, but there's so much more to you. And that's, and that was the beauty of this whole thing. I mean, and, and I'm bringing this up now is that we hung out. You came to Indianapolis. We hung out, which was great. Dropped you off at your hotel room. We find out that Biden won the election. And what happens an hour later? I'm on Instagram, and I see, no, I get a text from you, and I go, hey, man, how about this song right here? And the song was Trump is Gone, and next thing you know, you are back in the national spotlight. How did that, how quick did that song come about? Because people don't realize, when Billy come to town, we hang out. I mean, we, I mean, we're not just talking, I mean, we literally we hang out, that's my boy, we go out to eat, we, and we went to a movie. So that day, I think, I think we went to an afternoon, whatever, no, we went to go eat. We went to go eat, hung out, dropped him off, all right, man, have a good show, okay, it was the afternoon. It was a, it was a great bro.
1: And like, and like, we're literally like that when we, when we leave each other,
0: you yeah. know? <laughs> oh, all
1: right, all right. Okay. Man. All right, man. I see you, bro. All right, man. Yeah.
0: yeah. I drop him off and I swear, I swear it's not more than an hour. I get a text. Oh, it's Billy B, Trump is gone. <laughs> and next thing you know, and next thing you know, it's, he's literally on the national radar. He's on talk shows, whatever. With how quick did that song come about?
1: Bro, it came not I I, I uh, actually did a raw version of it and sent it to George Wallace. And you remember how pissed off I was about it that day. Yeah. And George didn't tell me that he was sending it out to people. So George sent the raw version of it out to Earthquake, and then Earthquake put it up on his platform. And then uh, uh, somebody tagged me in it. And, and the first time they tagged me in it, it had like uh, ninety-eight thousand views. And I was like, God damn, it, that's crazy. And then so I told somebody else about it, like maybe two hours later. And then I checked on it again and it had over a million just in that point of time. So then we went to the studio. Then we did it again. I just think that song, that Trump is gone song, you know, first of all, it's kind of, it's like a gospel romp. You know, it has like gospel stuff. It has blues stuff. And then, you know, we did it. I did it with a famous gospel singer, uh, 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 Sean, uh, Sean McLemore. I did it with with nephew Tommy from the Steve Harvey morning show. This young, this kid, uh, Phil Wade, and everybody, we just embodied that movement. And then, you know, and it just, everything just fit. And I think that, it, 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 I think it really appealed to like, like older black people. Like this was the song, somebody said this to me and I, and I agree with them. This is the like, typically, like you have like the, the viral stuff that kids share with their parents. Yes. But this, I think this was a song that parents shared with their kids. Yeah. And then that's the and that's, and they pushed it out there, yeah. Man, and you know, I was supposed to be on MSNBC and all this sort of stuff, and that never happened, which is cool. 10 years ago, I, I would have been destroyed by it that they called they would call me at the last minute after I'd already set up all this. Shit, and they were like, We well, no, we're not gonna do it because of the capital riots. They thought, well, because of the capital riots, we're not gonna do it because we don't wanna, you know, further exacerbate whatever this energy is. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Yeah. But my but but, but Kari Champion. From ESPN, her and Jamel Hill, you know, they was like, "Man, we ain't scared. <laughs> we gonna put it on." So yeah. they did. They they opened their show with it. They choreographed the dance to it. They talked about it. Carrie said, "My good friend Billy D. Washington," after after only having met me one time. And then you know, it was cool, but it had yeah, man, it got over a hundred million interactions, wow. and it went viral as, as, as freak and. I didn't make a dime, just in case you're curious. Are
0: you serious? Nothing. Bro, Why? I have
1: nothing. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I'm waiting on that check. I talked to my people, my my people, and they're like, Yeah, man, it just takes a while for the, you know, everything to filter through and whatever, whatever.
0: It's gotta go through the
1: pipeline. Yeah, yeah. I got my little uh, I got my little uh, my little residual check this month for my record company. It's hundred and eighty three dollars. I'm like, bro. This has got uh, over 100 million interactions. What is going on? So anyway, but I ain't going to be negative. But yeah, man, it was a, but you know, it's I uh, I didn't do it for the money. I did it because my parents, because my parents were upset and they thought that Trump was going to win. And I just got on the piano and I played the song to them and I sent them the video. And then when, when uh, Biden won, my dad said to me, hey man, you should send that song to somebody. Because people are gonna want to hear that song. I'm like, Dad, I don't nobody want to hear this song. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, you know what, Daddy? Somebody might want to hear this song. So then I send it to a few of my friends, and then whatever, and And then you know, and so on. That that third day, my song was ringing off the my phone was ringing off the hook. You know that your video has gone viral when people send it to you, not even knowing that you're in it.
0: Wow. I never yeah. thought about that, but wow. Yeah, yeah. People were sending me that song and didn't even know it was me. You're the cult classic, man. I mean, seriously. You're that one-hit wonder, man. But, I mean, I say that, but that's kind of a disrespect because you're more than one-hit wonder, but to the outside world, you're one-hit wonder. But to me, shh, come on now. I mean, I know Girl. you. So, has it ever has it ever bothered you a little bit that, and, and I asked this other comment, and I don't mean, you know me, I mean no disrespect. Has it ever bothered you that you're not, Bigger than what you are, that 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 the rest of the world that know who you are. Because I like I said, I know what you do, and I've seen what you do. And like I said that song 100 million views okay and then you like i said with the plays and the short films and you were a, a vj on on, on on vh1 you were out there you did def jam you've done it all and i and i look i as far as versatility there's no one in hollywood period you're definitely in the top 10 easily of versatility so when you look at and you navigate your way through this, this show business which is a son of a bitch but we chose this profession is it? Does it bother you? Sometimes you go, man. You know, I kind of wish that, or like everybody knew who I was, or or maybe you know, monetarily. Uh, does that bother you? Or whatever, or stick to your craw. Like it uh, me sometimes it
1: used to. Now nah, it, it used to. It used to. But when I start to see, like like the older you get, and I'm not gonna name names, but <laughs> when you see people that have. These peaks in their career, but then they can't handle the valley. Like we were together, and I'm not going to mention the name because I have too much respect for him. We were together when a comedian that we both love and respect was found hanged in his closet. that killed himself. We were together. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are people that you know you see them up here and you think that they doing this, this, that, and the third. You see them on TV and they whatever, but dude. Uh, you know, but but behind the back, you know, people that know that they getting cars repossessed, they losing their homes, they're this. So Hollywood and superstardom is basically a facade. And you know, as long as you're happy, as long as I can keep these bills paid, BT, I got four years ago on my on, on my house. You know, I just bought my wife a new car. You know, I put two kids through college. You know, I did all this. If somebody said, would you exchange that? for taking a chance on like living in LA, do or die and whatever. Even if even if I gave you, uh, uh, even if I, I'm, I'm, I put the, the odds in your favor, would you exchange it? And that answer is no every day of the week and twice on Sundays. I'm happy with my life, man. You know, it, it, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been great for me to be like some household name and some big celebrity with millions of followers and whatever, of course. But without that, dude, I am still complete, man. I'm happy. I'm working in my craft. I'm making enough money to put food on the table, save a little money, and vacation every now and
0: then. And if that's all it's going to be, bro, I'm good. How long did it take to to get to that point? To like, there's There's a line in a Bob Seger song when he goes, and you realize you just don't need it all. You just don't need it all. So what? When did you get to that point where you go, okay, I'm cool? You know that point of like, all right, okay, I'm good. Like to where you are now. Is it is it like age? I, is it maturity? Or is it just? Or was it a certain event that happened that made you step step back and go, okay? It
1: just it just it just like when I look at other people, when I look at other people who have like not every example, like there's some people that do well and they have great lives outside of show business. But you know, first okay, so a lot of times people say. Uh comedians go to uh like a lot of LA comics say comedians go to cruise cruise ships. Uh the cruise ships are the place that comedians' career go to die, right? Yes,
0: yeah. I was but, gonna get to that, but, but yo, I'm glad you touched it. Yes.
1: But there are a lot more dead careers in LA
0: <laughs> than
1: there are on cruise ships. Yes. Quote me on that.
0: Yes. Because
1: but but it's all relative. Like I'm not working in the spotlight. But, I, man, I still, I'm still blessed to be able to work in front of thousands of people every week for a wage that I'm happy with, you know, to be able to do what I do, to be able to write stuff. Uh, I, just sold, I just sold this project to BET that's going to air on, uh, on August the 11th. It's a short film of mine called The Pillowcase. Hey, man, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, 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 I didn't go to writing school. I didn't, I, didn't, I don't have a degree in, in any of that stuff. I didn't really grind in order to get that opportunity. So I'm pretty sure there's some people that are grinding and that, that you know, that have been writing a lot longer than I have that ain't that ain't get what I got. This just kind of happened because I knew somebody that knew of this project and somebody that they knew liked it because it appealed to something that they like and they have a position of power and they bought it. That's how Hollywood happens. It ain't never up to us, B. It's never up to us. All we can be is the best person we can be and allow our peers to say, when my peers, when you ask me, Hey man, uh, uh, does it bother you or that that you didn't make it? It's enough for me because that says to me that my peers think that I should be that dude. If my peers think it, then that's what it was supposed to be, and then that means that it wasn't up to us. Because I feel the same way about you. i be looking going, man, dude, you're doing it. Like I've never been an in front of the camera, guy, but you were you were in front of the camera, guy, when you were when you were in your 30s, when you were in your 40s, when you were in your 50s, and now in your <laughs>
0: You motherfucker, that was slick. I like that,
1: but uh, but but what I'm saying is, I'm joking. You know, know clearly know. You're, you're clearly you're only 59. But what I'm saying <laughs> is, is that it's like, dude, you are still a dude. That's it can happen. It can still happen for you tomorrow, and that's a blessing. You are keeping your weight down. You still look good. Hey, man, how many of these dudes can say that? I can name off a dozen comedians that hit that spot. That did their HBO specials. They had their sitcoms. They did this, they did that in the third, and in 1993, and in 2002, and in 2007, and where they at now. Brother, they they gone, they're broke, they're homeless, they're begging, not all of them, but for the most part, they still slipping around in LA, calling me up, hey man, how do I get on cruise ships? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. no, dude, I mean, if we've navigated to this point, BT, I think we've won. And, I mean, everybody ain't going to be Kevin Hart. You know, everybody ain't going to be – I mean, where's, where's where's John Hinton, who I'd love to see a special from now? But where is he right now? Yeah. Super talented dude. Is he just living off of those checks or whatever? That dude was on top of the world. Where is he? I don't know. Yeah. But we're still in the game. People still watching. People still doing stuff. I can go to the open mic. I, I, I'm going to – just just for the sake of doing it, I'm doing a retirement home next month. It's going to be the week of July 20th. Yeah. And that same week I'm gonna do an open mic with and I'm gonna I'm gonna rip that shit up on both gigs yeah. and I'm gonna talk about it on Facebook. I can't wait just because we have that range. Ain't no ain't gonna no take no preparation. I'm going to the open mic, I'm gonna rip it. I'm gonna go to the to this old folks home and I'll rip that shit.
0: <laughs> you know what I'm saying?
1: It's <laughs> <is> gonna be <laughs> it's the <same> shit.
0: No, and <laughs> hey, don't rip too hard at the bro. old folks home. And hey, you wanna hey, kill, hey, but you bro. don't wanna kill.
1: yeah yeah man but no dude it's all man it's all God it's all the universe and like for any young creatives like members of your staff and your producers and whatever bro I mean if if, if, as long as you're living like your gift as long as you're living your gift and whether you believe in the bible I think it's one of the most uh, 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 philosophical mechanisms in the history of mankind. The Bible says that you that your hard work will make room for your gift, and I believe that if you keep working hard, it'll make room for your gift. It didn't say it's gonna make room for your budget, but it'll <laughs> make room for you.
0: But it'll make. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but it said it'll make
1: room for your gift.
0: You know, it's funny, man. There's a conversation we had, and uh, and I actually, I used it last night in open mic, and I, it always comes back to you. And uh, you know, it's like. You know your father was a pastor, and, and you know, and you know you play in the church, and and you know religion plays a a big part in your uh, in your life. Um, right. And I just remember, and I find myself questioning religion more. And and I hate that I'm bringing this up now that you know it's coming to an end, but it's like I've always been like. Blacks, have, you know, not even stereotypically, but we've gone to church. Eighty-three percent—we're the largest race of people that goes to church on a regular. Eighty-three percent of us are regular church going, and and my whole thing is, and I'm, and I'm questioning that in my real life. So I'm trying to get into comedy. But I remember we had this conversation, and I was like, you know, like it would make to me, it would make more sense if blacks were atheists. Than going to because I, I I as a group I've never saw religion as a group of Black people working. I mean individually I see it. Individually I see that. I mean if you just go you know like like you said you work hard until something's gonna happen. I believe that. But as a group I just never saw it. And the, to me I, what I thought was the funniest thing was you go no religion was what the, you know it got the slave through slavery. And I was like you know that's a bad example Billy. You know I mean, oh. I, no, but 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 they, but they had to believe in something they had to believe in
1: something just but, did, to but, be he, able but to, it didn't uh, work out for them though I mean they believed in but, God, how, they, 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 but, but there's no but there, but there's no, metric, there's no metric there's no metric there's no solid metric to, 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 to uh, support either you can't say so we don't know God because we never met him or we've never not met him and we don't know that we don't know that he's responsible for it or we don't know that he wasn't responsible for it uh, uh, you know uh, even though it's especially especially in Texas, because it was two years later, you know. <laughs> shout out to Juneteenth, but 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 we don't know. Let me just say, okay. So we've had this conversation, and if you want to edit this and cut out some of the other shit I said, I want to I say ain't this. Cut that I wanna, shit, oh,
0: man. This is okay form,
1: because man. because I want to say this. Okay, sure. Like do, I believe in God, like all the other Christian stuff and whatever. I, and I believe I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus was this man, like Martin the game. I believe he died for what he believed in. And as far as all the supernatural stuff, you know, I'm either I'm neither yay or nay on that. You know that's for other people to do this is where I look at this is where I look at the Bible. I look at the Bible like this. The Bible is like a menu. You go to a restaurant, nobody just nobody just like takes the whole fucking menu and orders the whole menu and go, yeah, when I digest all this then I'm gonna feel better about myself. It never happens. What you should do is just go through, pick out the stuff that's 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 good for you, like these philosophies. Like I'm doing this bit right now about my son. My son is like I need to get my, my social media numbers up. He's like daddy, you need more followers. I'm like, well, son. Well, Jesus had twelve followers, and he's still trending. So you know, it's like you pick out the stuff that you need for whatever particular thing that you need to do. But just like, but just like, a, just like a restaurant menu. Like, dude, eat what you're gonna eat, digest what you're gonna digest. But the problem with Christianity is what they like to do is they want to eat what they eat. But when they walk out of the restaurant, they want to criticize what everybody else is eating. And and that's, that's the beautiful. problem. That, that's beautiful. Then that's the problem that that we run into because. In church, man, you, you you hate to like like. I listen to a lot of sermons when I drive. I love listening to sermons because I love the I love the rhythm of it and and the vibe of it because it reminds me of my childhood. It takes me back to all those days I went to church and whatever. But when you start to listen to people, like especially black pre- preachers to black congregations, dude, they sound like like bad uh, sports radio hosts. <laughs> It's like, okay, we're on the same team, but we're gonna talk shit about them for 30 minutes. And then at the end of the day, you're gonna say, come back and listen the next time we talk shit about them. Then like, why do I wanna listen to this? And then they wonder, and then but the but the model is is Joel Osteen. But ain't nobody Joel Osteen talks about positivity. He talks about being a better person. He talks about you can mess up, you can be forgiven. He writes books. Based on he does a sermon and then he makes a book with that exact sermon. He's a kazillionaire, made all his money, made all these people happy. But black preachers are still like, well, you know, Joel Osteen ain't this that. The third dude, this is the model. People want to feel good about themselves. Yes. First and foremost, you ain't got to criticize me and tell me what I'm not doing right and all this kind of stuff, man. Hey, let me pick what I'm gonna pick from that menu and let me be cool with it. Whatever you, whatever you pick from your menu. I'm good. I'm not gonna criticize you about it when I walk out the door. But whatever I want in terms of that, if we try to digest the whole menu, hey, bro, it's some stuff we're on fool with. But that don't mean we gonna dismiss the whole menu. There's some things on that menu that we can use, man. Even if it's it, even if it's even if it's songs. You know, you read songs, man. Psalms has some of the most profound, like like uh, 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 life quotes and stuff that, and, and motivational philosophy that you can read. Anywhere, that just one book. Like some of the other stuff, you know, like the, 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 the bed of the Whale and all that kind of shit. Man, you know, I, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, no shade to Jonah. If Jonah's family listening, you know, shout out. But I'm saying, this, it's like, you know, it's like, but if you just listen, like just certain things, like your hard work will make room for your gift. Yes, dude, I got that. That's straight from the Bible. And that's true. Yes, and when true. I say it didn't say it's gonna make room for your budget, it didn't say that. It said it's gonna make room for your gift. You're gifted in what you do, bro. You, you this pandemic, you've created this this you you've expanded your brand to a point where a lot of people have it. And trust me, people are watching you and they're hating. You know, you're in a studio, bro. You're not in your basement, you know, with a with a with some kind of you know, with a with a Radio Shack mic that you bought and Radio Shack was open. Bro, you're on there with a solid mic. With a, with a beautiful landscape behind you, you know, some dude in the periphery uh, operating a camera. You got another dude, wide sent me emails, put a thing. It's, you got a whole thing going on right now, man. And what, what what's happened? Your hard work has made room for this gift that you are portraying right here and that you do, I don't know, a couple times a week, every week, and whatever, but that just one of the gifts. And you got all this other stuff. So do I look back and go, do I wonder why I'm not a bigger deal and whatever? No man, because I might not be a bigger deal to other people, but to Billy D. Washington, man, I'm a big fucking deal.
0: You are. I mean, honestly, yeah. And people can take that how they want to take it, but the fact that I've seen you work, and I, I still say the many times we worked together with the telecom Comedy Tour, which I think is still the greatest comedy, one of the greatest comedy tours around, because we went against type, and and it was success. But saying that, and I've watched you perform every night every night and it was always a little bit different but what was the greatest night i've ever seen you for some reason was that night in indianapolis and in morty's you just stood there you had the mic like this and it was Papa the Papa the Papa, and it was so beautiful to watch and i think that was the greatest thing about that tour that it was like everybody had their every, four black men never overlapped in material four black headliners who have at least two to three hours of material and we never overlapped like hey man could you not do this joke because i do we never did that we never yeah watching you and your versatility when you go you know what i'm gonna play piano tonight or the piano be set up you go you know what i'm just gonna tell jokes tonight and it was so beautiful and as i close out, when i close out this May ask you, of all the things you've done with, all, with, like I said, being a head writer for an award show, to, to winning accolades with the short films, to, 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 talk, to co-hosting VH1, to doing stand-up mm-hmm. on Late Night, what to you, at this moment in life, at this moment in time, because man, you ain't showing no, no signs of slowing down at all. At this stage, so far, what's been your crowning achievement that you go, yeah, okay, I did that shit? The
1: crowning achievement was uh, circa... 1983 uh, i went to cashmere senior high school mm-hmm. uh cashmere high school was was known for their jazz band mm-hmm. uh we had a a, a, a a band director that was that, that was literally a, a an abuser mm-hmm. like he beat us with paddles paddles and whatever we, i lived in a in a, in a, in a, in a south that was even 20 years removed from from jim crow uh I played instruments, I played piano, I played trombone, I played tuba. Uh, and so there was this, this this jazz competition that no other jazz band had ever gone to, right? Mm-hmm. They'd, never, they'd never done it, we never do it, they never did it because they never let the, the, the black, even though the black uh, bands were superior, they never won because of, of that bullshit. Nobody in the band wanted to go. I wanted to go just because we were so good and I knew that we were going to win. My band director didn't want to go. I gathered a few nerds on, on my side and we did some other stuff. We wanted to play some pro charts. There's a song called Zero Point that nobody wanted to play. For a whole summer, we rehearsed Zero Point. There's this thing that I, I learned how to play this solo on a tuba uh, on a song. And I played keyboard in the jazz band too. I wasn't the main keyboard player, I was, I was the first drum on player. Okay, so fast forward. So we go through all this stuff. We weren't supposed to be there. I was bullied in high school, like didn't have a name. I was always small for my, well, I was small for my age until I got like my first year in college. And that's when I grew up. Got beat up, no respect, played the piano. People called me the, the F word. And I could say it because it applied to me. They would call me faggot all the time yeah. because it, it applied to me. Cause I didn't have a girlfriend I was corny, had glasses <laughs> and shit, none of the stuff. I wasn't cool, right. nothing. Hated, they hated me. I hated me. The whole thing. 1983. It was at the North Shore Jazz Competition. Um, all white bands there, and the only black band was there was HSPVA, which was the Performing Arts School. They didn't let them compete because they were Performing Arts School. We weren't. We had classes and whatever. But they were still there. We go up and do our thing. They turned off of our. They turned off our our, like, our mics the trumpet player got up, he played zero point. It was just, there was solo. I'm, 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 I'm going to finish this story in a second. There was a solo that was so, uh, 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 he blew through the horn and he blew so hard until his lip busted and blood came out of the, the beginning of the, 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 the tip of the, the, the horn. Wow. I get up, they turn my mic off and I'm playing the tuba solo and they turn the mic off and it was so uh, uh, it was so loud without it until people started to stand up. They stood up and they started clapping because they'd never seen anybody do jazz tuba before. Played the trombone solo, play the dance solo, whatever. Nobody wanted to go. So they started announcing awards and stuff, right? So uh, my band director was upset because he said, man, I, I knew we shouldn't do this bullshit because they weren't announcing no black people to win nothing. All these white people there, whatever, whatever. My, my, the other bandmates, it was on a Saturday. They would rather be somewhere else. This whole shit, this is a citywide jazz competition they get to an uh, all-star musician. Uh, one of our guys got an all-star award. Everybody was happy. We were like, oh, okay, at least we got something. So then they announced the winners. Third place was a white school. Second place was a white school. We wouldn't even have winning. Someone was outside. some, first place was Cashmere Senior High School. We were like, oh my God, we won this shit. But then they announced they had another award for most outstanding musician for the whole festival. Mind you, it was a two-day event. 60-70 bands from all over Texas, hundreds, if not thousands of musicians. Uh, they're not third place, they're not second place, and the first place trophy for the most outstanding musician in the Coca-Cola Jazz competition in 1983 was Billy D. Washington. So no matter what I do for the rest of my career, what I've ever done in my com- comedy career, that is going to be the moment of my entertainment career that I remember forever.
0: Wow. I yeah. I mean, wow. Brother.
1: Yeah. I, didn't even
0: I, know I, I, I barely got through that.
1: I barely got through that. That's, that's the only story that I can't get through without crying. Dude, I barely got through
0: it. That, yeah. that just sent... It's true. I'm, I mean, bottom of my heart, there's, there's, I got goosebumps, bro. Cause I never heard this story before. Wow. And yeah, I know... Yeah. I mean, you say 1983, I know the mentality then. And in Texas, then I know that mentality. So right. I know what you went through and for you to do, man, God damn, yeah. man. That's beautiful, brother. Yeah, and it's yeah funny, that's, that, that's the moment. And it's funny that we ended with that because I was trying to get to it and I couldn't. And I wanted to tell the people who've never seen you, watching Billy D, is like comedy. It, if jazz was comedy and comedy were jazz, that's what Billy D is. It's like, it's like laughing to jazz. And that's what you Yeah, I, I appreciate I mean, that, bro. No, I mean nothing about it. I've always said that. I mean, Billy D is jazz, man. You watch Billy. He's got that smooth vibe. I mean, I can see you. It, I can see it, it's in a nightclub or whatever. And it's got those nice velvet, you know, like big boosts, you know, velvety. And you got a nice little thing of wine. And you're just watching you go on stage and that smooth delivery that you have. And you're just sipping the wine and laughing. You got to wait because you don't want to drink while you're hitting that punch. You know, the wine's going to come out and that's Billy. because he will make you <laughs> laugh that hard. So that's what yeah. you are. Yeah. You okay. He's done with a punch on him get this sip of wine in. Cause it's going to come out. So dude, I can't begin to say thank you enough. and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Like I said, I didn't want to disrespect you by going, man, that's my dude. That's my dude right there. No, no, no. You deserve that respect, Billy. You are one of the most versatile artists in the game today and show business. So, man, I appreciate you. If you guys get a chance, go to Instagram at Billy D. Washington. Download Trump is Gone. It's a funny song. Man, I can't give you enough accolades. There's there's not enough superlatives to describe you. So, Billy, I want to thank you for being on the show, brother. Thank you for being a friend, and just thank you for all that you've done for the entertainment community, brother. I mean it.
1: Yeah, bro. Well, well you know, well, game recognizes game, homeboy, so, you know, you know how much respect I have for you, and, uh, and just like and just like every time we hook up and you know and whatever we are at the end of this this interview and I'll say man parting is such sweet sorrow.
0: <laughs> thank you, V. <laughs> you know I appreciate you, brother. Hey, thank you everybody for watching Tales from the Gym, and I hope you enjoyed it. And like I say around this time, you know the word pain.